Okay, two places in Scripture that I'm going to have you turn to this morning is Revelation chapter 11, and then in the Old Testament, uh, Zechariah chapter, chapter 4. Um, go ahead and turn to those two places. Uh, Revelation chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 4. We do this uh, thing on Tuesday nights with the, <laughs> with the youth group, and it's, uh, ha, ha, yeah, there you go. Um, how many of you are familiar with the, the Bible sword drill? Have you ever gone through something like that? Like you, somebody says a scripture and you see who can turn there the fastest, right? Um, <laughs> with the youth group in particular, um, I have them take their Bibles and I, most of the time, I have them balance it on their head. Uh, Mikey knows what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, so I'll say the verse, but I, I can't tell you, without fail, at least six times before they, I actually say go, they're like, what verse was that? Can you tell me what verse it was again? And so if you, if you hear a lot of repetition, <laughs> it's all thanks to youth group. Um, yes. <laughs> Um, are you all there? All right. <laughs> Revelation chapter 11. Uh, go ahead and stand and, and uh, eventually we'll get to Zechariah chapter 4. Um, we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 14 uh, this morning out of Revelation chapter 11. Uh, I'm reading out of the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you and it'll be up on the screen as well. Um, but I encourage you to bring your Bible so you can mark your Bible up. Uh, verse 1, chapter 11. Uh, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed." They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom. In Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. 
and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was an earthquake, a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the privilege that we have to come here and open it. Lord, while there's many other countries that don't have this freedom, here we are this morning gathered together, not hiding, not not running in fear, but we're here openly and, and publicly reading your word. God, we believe your word is truth. And we pray that this morning your truth would just wash over us. Lord, that we would become even more familiar with the truth of your word than we were before when we first came in here this morning. Jesus, thank you for demonstrating your great love for us. I pray that we would be transformed by that love and we would walk in obedience unto you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Believe it or not, you can have a seat, um, we're at the halfway point of our study through the book of Revelation. Uh, now, there's 21 chapters, we're at chapter 11. Um, now, some of these chapters are short, um, not like Corinthians where it took us a while to get through uh, the letter to the Corinthians, but Revelation, we are at that halfway point. And as we uh, approach the remainder of this study together I want to remind you of the built-in promise that is found within the book of Revelation. Uh, If you remember when we first started, one of the first things that I made mention of was the first, one of the first verses, which is in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Uh, Now, we've been reading the word together. Uh, I I hope that Sunday mornings aren't the only time that you've gone through the book of Revelation. My prayer for you and my hope for you and desire for you is that you would look back at what we've studied. Uh, Revelation uh, is still profitable for our instruction, even on our own, on our own time when we get into the Word of God. But we've been reading the Word together, uh, this book specifically, and there's a a blessing in that. You you all want to be blessed, right? One person does. Okay. Um, I'm with you, one person. Uh, but you all want to be blessed, right? Yeah. Yeah, so do I. And it's such an easy blessing to receive. We receive the blessing by reading the word. So as we're reading the words, we receive the blessing. But then he goes on and, say, and says, blessed are those who hear. You all want a blessing, right? It was weak this time. The first time on our redemption time was good. Uh, a blessing comes to those who hear. Uh, so as you're hearing the word uh, of revelation spoken and read, you receive a blessing. And not only that, uh, the third one is who keeps what is written in it. Now, it seems to me that there's a theme going on within our congregation in the last couple of weeks, and the theme is obedience. Uh, now, uh, Cliff is going to be preaching next week up here for me because my wife and I are celebrating nine years of marriage. Yeah. 
she'll kill me later for that one. Um, <laughs> um, but where he's going in his message, and I'm not going to steal his thunder because Cliff has got hidden thunder that nobody has ever seen before. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but he's talking about obedience. Uh, and part of his message will be on that. But uh, this word keep, remember, is, to, is not just to keep something, it's to do, to obey. And so as we're reading the word, listen, it's not enough for us to just hear these words, but we must do them, we must apply them. Uh, as we were talking in our pre-huddle time this morning, uh, you won't see true transformation in your life until you actually start applying Scripture to your life. It's not just for our knowledge, it's for life. First Peter says that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And guess where that is found? In the Word of God. And so there's a blessing for us as we read and hear and keep. Now, as many of you know and as many of you have discovered in our study together, maybe even on your own, that the book of Revelation is a very prophetic book. Uh, It deals with end-time events that will take place. Now, many of you may have come in this morning and have been wondering, where exactly does that giant white Chinese balloon fit into the revelation? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. Uh, But it doesn't, so don't be alarmed. Uh, Jesus said that all of the things that we're experiencing right now are uh, the onset of what is to come. These are just the birth pains, the, the labor pains. And uh, when, when, when the real stuff comes, so to speak, then, uh, well, we won't even have to be worried about it. Because as a church, as believers, we're not here. Yeah. So, but to to close the book on the history of this world, so to speak, there are some events that must take place. And some of these events are very heavy, very uh, uh, terrifying. Um, And if you're not a believer this morning, as we read these words, please understand that these words are not just made up words. These are not fairy tale words. This is actually going to happen. It is a prophetic book. It is also a symbolic book. And John is doing his best to describe what he sees as he's receiving this revelation. Uh, But understand that the end times will be fierce. They will be hard. Uh, they, They will be frightening. But for the believer, believer, you have so much to look forward to. Uh, heaven is nearer to us this day than it has ever been before. Uh, every day is a step closer <laughs> to eternity with Christ. I hear Bob saying a lot of amens back there. <laughs> but anyways, for, for all of us, and listen, please, if you have not put your trust in Jesus as Savior, do it today. Uh, make that decision to follow Him as Lord and Savior and Master of your life. Uh, but like I mentioned, the, the church will not be here for any of these events, uh, praise God for that. Jesus will come back for his church. Uh, it's the word rapture, harpazo, to be caught up. And the church, the bride of Christ, will be caught up with Jesus in the air. And Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia, which applies to us as well. Remember, Philadelphia uh, was, was one of the ones uh, that they, they got a lot right. And Jesus says to them, he promises them, he, he says in Revelation 3.10, he says, Because you have kept my word, 
You see that again? Because you have kept my word. Because you have obeyed my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. A way that, the way that Jesus is going to keep this church from the hour of trial upon the world, specifically the believers in Philadelphia, is to either die in the Lord, because being absent from the body is present with the Lord, or If the Lord would have chosen to come back then, they would have been raptured. So either way, the church in Philadelphia was spared. So here's what I'm saying. If you are a believer today and you were to die tomorrow, listen, because of what Jesus did for you, your assurance of going to heaven is sealed because of what he did. But if Jesus chooses to come back in the next few minutes, he could. And are you ready? If he chooses to come back, the ones that will be left behind are the ones who have rejected Christ. The ones who have decided that I know that, I think, my plans are better than God Almighty. Here's the thing. Neither you nor I know the exact time when this rapture will take place. Jesus doesn't even know when he's coming back. Only the Father knows when he's coming back. Uh, So here's my encouragement to you uh, this morning. If you haven't turned your life over to Christ, do it today. Uh, Maybe you've been claiming the name of Christ, but your life has been anything but Christ-like. You've been living like the world. Listen, repent and turn to Jesus today. For tomorrow, you or I may die. Or, if the Lord chooses to come back, we could be left behind. If, if we haven't given our lives over to Christ, listen, uh, we don't want to go through this stuff. See, we don't know when the rapture of the church will happen. Uh, but when that trumpet sounds, as Scripture says it will, when Christ comes back for His church, are you ready? Now, Many people have the question, when will the end of the world happen? Um, When does the sky fall, so to speak? Uh, Well, the one thing we don't know is when the church will get caught up. But right after the rapture, when Jesus takes his church, when he calls his bride home, we do know from that very moment when the end of the world will be. Seven years. Seven years after that time, God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. So, where are we now in the book of Revelation? Well, recap of chapter 10, if you weren't here with us last week, or maybe you need some refreshing. We saw last week that John had a vision of a mighty angel with a little scroll. Now, this angel was not Jesus, but we took notice that this angel hung out in the presence of God, that he was around the Lord, and so he carried some of the characteristics and attributes of the Lord. And John would be commanded to approach this mighty angel and ask this mighty angel for a little scroll. Now, the little scroll was not the scroll that Jesus was holding. This little scroll, remember, think cliff notes of the main scroll, right? Uh, the, The summary of it. This could have been what that little scroll was. And the angel says to John, It's going to be sweet once you eat it. I mean, if you've tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord, you you know 
what it is like to feast upon the word of God. It is sweet, but to those who reject Christ, when you portray that message, when you give that message of the gospel to somebody who wants nothing to do with Jesus, and they reject it, it becomes bitter within you. Because you know the hope that lies within Jesus, and you want them to know it too, but it becomes bitter because they haven't accepted it. They've rejected the message of the gospel. And after this, John would be commissioned with the scroll, along with that scroll, not only to eat it, but he would be commissioned to go and prophesy in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Uh, John's mission or his assignment to proclaim the gospel would not be done yet. It was not finished. He still had more to do. And the angel is essentially saying, listen, go tell as many people as possible about the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Uh, But that's not the only part of this commissioning. There's another part to it in chapter 11 where we find ourselves this morning. In chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, John is giving, given a measuring rod, uh, or, or think a tape measure in our day. Um, he's given uh, a ruler or a tape measure, and he is told to go measure three things. He's told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. There's three specific things that he is told to go and measure. But then he's told not to measure something, and that is the court outside the temple He says, the angel, he says, leave that out. Why? Because that part is given over to the nations who will make essentially a mess of the holy city for 42 months, which is equivalent to three and a half years. But the question is, why is John told to measure a a temple? Uh, Now, this is truly a prophetic occurrence that is happening because if you've studied history or if you're in the thick of history uh, you'll know that the temple has been destroyed twice Uh, now uh, if you're anything like me when you uh, get to scripture and you're reading through the Old Testament or you're reading through some of the the gospels uh, you'll see these words, and they may confuse you at times, but tabernacle, synagogue, and temple. Now, uh, for some, these are not familiar words for us because you and I don't go to a synagogue. You and I don't go to a temple. We, I don't know if you've ever hung out in a tabernacle, uh, but there's these three words that I just want to give some clarity to for a moment, uh, but tabernacle. Uh, now, there's a picture of a tabernacle right there. Uh, essentially a a, a mobilized uh, tent. This tent could go from place to to place. But uh, do you remember when God delivered the Israelites out of the hand of the Egyptians? He uh, delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians through the crossing of the Red Sea. And as they would see the deliverance of the Lord, God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle with very specific instructions, which someday we'll walk through the tabernacle together and see how it all points to Jesus. But it was a tent of sorts. It was a tent to remind the Israelites of God's constant presence with them. This tabernacle would go with the Israelites wherever they went. And so Moses was commanded, and so Moses instructed a tabernacle much like that. Now, another word that we see in Scripture is a synagogue. 
Maybe this is a little bit more familiar uh, to you, but a synagogue was essentially a place for people uh, to pray together at, to receive instruction from the Torah. It was a place of community. Everybody would go to the synagogue. Uh, I, I will venture to say this, the chosen does a good job with portraying what a synagogue is. Um, now, a synagogue is a little bit easy for us to understand. It, it was essentially a church building. Um, and now, the temple. Now, the next picture is a temple. Now, this thing was amazing. Uh, to, to be a part of the construction of this temple with the gold and the royal purple and, and on and on and on. Uh, it was amazing to be a part of that, but we have to understand where the temple came from, how it came about. Uh, you all familiar with David? In the Bible, David was the king of Israel. And scripture says that after the Israelites were given rest from their enemies, David had a desire within his heart to build a dwelling place for the Lord, a temple. He said this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2. He says, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar. Now, uh, cedar is a type of wood, right? Now, I think we've got to get past thinking that these biblical people lived in mud houses. Uh, David lived in a house that maybe uh, had structure similar to, to ours, but uh, he says, listen, I, I'm comfortable. I live in this house. There, there, there's warmth around me, but the ark of God, the presence of God, it's still dwelling in a tent. And, and if you remember Nathan, the prophet, Nathan says, yeah, my king, go and do that, that which is in your heart. Do it. See, David's intentions were pure. They were right. He wanted to build God something, but David would become a man that had shed innocent blood. If you remember Uriah and Bathsheba, that whole story, his intentions were good, but God had other plans. And God's response to David is this. Uh, Nathan, if, if you remember, Nathan responds, go do it. And then he comes back and God meets with him and says, no, 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 Nathan, you got to go tell him I got different plans and it's not to use him to build my house. Second Samuel 7, 7, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving in a tent for my dwelling. Listen, God wasn't upset that David wanted to build a house for him. A temple for him. God was astonished at his generosity, if you will. God wasn't mad about it, but he knew that David's heart was not uh, in the right place, in a sense, to do that because of what he would uh, go on to do with murdering Uriah. You can read more about that uh, in Second Chronicles. Uh, but David's heart was right. His motives were pure, and God said, Listen, your son is going to build the temple, Solomon. So Solomon would build this immaculate temple, yet it would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And after the children of Israel re returned from the Babylonian captivity, the temple was rebuilt. Uh, that's where we uh, get into these minor prophets and where we meet Nehemiah and, and Obadiah and all these guys that, that sought to help in the rebuilding of the temple. But Unfortunately, that very temple that was rebuilt would again become destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Now, the temple, there is no temple. However, 
there is a small group of Jewish men within Israel that are seeking to build a temple uh, to offer once again animal sacrifices, but the way that human or uh, animal rights activists are with animals, it would be incredibly hard to find a sheep to slaughter for the sake of sacrificing in the temple. But the temple, now, there are plans to rebuild, which is interesting because the temple is talked about in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And guess who sits on the throne in that temple? The Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, it says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Guys, this stuff is unfolding before us. Like, what we read in Scripture is not made up. It is going to happen. And my, my, my urge to you, my call to you is be ready. Be ready for the sound of the trumpet because Jesus is coming back and he wants you to come with him. Now, this will lead into a time where the Antichrist will try, as he may, to take over. He will try to continue to ruin lives in his attempt to reign, offering, remember, three and a half years of peace with Israel, and then pulling that peace treaty and, and creating havoc with, within the world at that, the next three and a half years. But here's my question this morning if there's no temple, is John actually measuring a physical temple? I don't believe so. For this very reason, and I believe it is found in 1 Corinthians 6.19. Listen carefully. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Now, we've studied this before, but you see, God, through the Holy Spirit, has chosen to make his home amongst his people. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. No longer is God looking for a building to hang out in. He wants, through the Holy Spirit, to dwell within his people. That means if you are a follower of Christ, you are a believer in Christ, and are following him wholeheartedly, your body is a tent, tent, your tent, (laughs) is the dwelling place, the temple of the Lord. 1 John 4, 4. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Acts 7, 48. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. So where does he live? Where does he dwell? The Holy Spirit dwells within you if you are a follower of Christ this morning. But why is John supposed to measure? So is he measuring the physical temple? I I don't believe so. So why is he supposed to measure? And we'll get to what I believe he's measuring. Uh, he's, He's supposed to measure 
really to remind us and those that are in the last days, really to remind us and them that God weighs the heart. Listen to Proverbs 21 verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The word way in Hebrew is to measure. It is to test. It is to prove. You see, God knows the intent of your heart. He knows the intent of your heart. And when it comes to the temple, listen, worship took place in that temple. They went to worship at the temple. He saw what was taking place in that physical temple. Worship takes place in you as well. Listen, God knows why you do what you do. He, he knows why you're lifting your hands during a, a song. He knows why you're talking to this person about the gospel. He knows why you're worshiping. It's either to give glory to him or it's to get glory for yourself. God knows why you do what you do, whether it is for him or not. He measures it because just like the temple was to be furnished and adorned a certain way, our worship to a holy God must be in a certain way as well. Uh, you remember how we talked about that we will be a church that worships in spirit and truth? That is the worship that God is expecting from his people. You see, people may see the exterior. They may see you with your hands lifted high. They may see us worshiping and we're so loud. We're louder than, the, uh, than, than Ian up here. Um, people can see that. They'll see the exterior, but the Lord knows the motives of the heart. Now, some believe that John was speaking of a literal temple, especially when it comes to his instructions not to measure the court of the Gentiles. And it could be that the unbelievers in the tribulation period will cause chaos in the outer courts. But I stand by this, that the measurement that John is taking is more symbolic than anything. I believe the believers who are full of the Spirit, because remember, people in the end times will end up giving their lives over to Christ. We just read that in chapter 11 today, people will still become saved and they'll still choose to worship God. They'll be full of the Spirit then, but they'll be protected. They'll be protected during the tribulation period. Uh, and no doubt, as we've already read, they'll receive persecution. Even these two witnesses who were anointed to do the work of, of God, they would receive persecution. However, they are protected because of the seal of God on their forehead. So, do I believe that it is a physical temple that John is measuring? I don't believe it is. I believe it is, in essence, a reminder for us to remember why we worship and why we're lifting our hands, why we're living for the Lord. It's not for our own gain, but it is for His glory. And we have to remember that He weighs the heart. He measures the heart. He tests the heart. The 42 months here refer to the three and a half years of earth and life on it until God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll address that question later on uh, because if you've studied Noah's Ark before, God said that he would never start over again. Why is he making a new heaven and a new earth? We'll get to that. But the two witnesses... So John is instructed to, to measure the temple, the altar, uh, the, everything in the temple except the outer court. 
Now, in verse 3 through 14, we meet these two witnesses. Now, who the two witnesses are is debatable, right? In chapter 11, verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Some say these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, Others say that these, witness, this, these witnesses could be Enoch and Elijah. Uh, but in this scripture, it doesn't specifically say who the two witnesses are, but by the way they're described and how they would punish those who tried to wipe them out, I lean more towards the two witnesses being Moses and Elijah. Listen to this. If you're familiar with Scripture, you remember the story of Elijah. It says in verse 6, They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who shut the sky? That it would not rain. Uh, Elijah. Uh, Moses. You remember what Moses did? They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. You remember what happened to the Nile River? God used Moses to bring about a plague that turned all the Nile into blood. So I lean more towards the side of it being Moses and Elijah. But what is not debatable is what their role is. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, which amount to 42 months. Which amount to... Three and a half years. See, they will be prophesying during the three and a half years of complete and utter chaos. Now, Zechariah chapter 4, if you bookmarked that, go ahead and turn there. Zechariah chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. It says, And the angel who talked with me, Zechariah speaking, writing, uh, he said, Who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And if I'm sarcastic, I'm still rubbing my eyes, like, What do you expect me to see? What do you see? I said, uh, I, I see, and, and Behold, a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on, on the top of it and, and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees. If you remember in Revelation, in chapter 11, we just read about two olive trees and two lampstands. And Zechariah is seeing a similar vision that John was seeing. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No. No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. And I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right hand and the left of the lampstand? And it's almost as if the angel is purposely not answering because Zechariah says, and a second time I answered him, or I, I asked him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I mean, come on, angel, really? He's already asked you two times. He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so Zechariah sees this vision of these olive trees and these two lampstands. Lamp if you remember, these lampstands were also symbolic of the church, that the church would be the one to, to be that, that lampstand. And so these two witnesses in that time uh, would be a, a witness to those who were perishing in, in the last days, who will be a witness. And an olive tree, an olive speaks of peace. I remember Noah when he sent out what type of bird and he came back with an olive branch. So they're offering peace and they're saying, listen, the only peace that you can find in this troubling time is through Christ. And they're bearing witness to that truth. They're saying, listen, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one to look to. And I love how Zechariah and Revelation pair up so well. But the two witnesses, they'll be clothed in sackcloth. Uh, now, I don't think that's a, a trend in our culture. I don't see any of you having sackcloth on right now. Uh, but the purpose of sackcloth in Scripture was for mourning. Uh, we see many of the patriarchs of the faith wearing them as they mourned over uh, death or uh, lamented over something. Job sat in sackcloth, if you remember. But why would the two witnesses sit there in sackcloth? Because their assignment is to preach the gospel to a Christ-rejecting world, knowing that many of them will continue to reject Christ and therefore mourn over the decision that they have made to reject Christ. And we'll see that they'll be met by persecution and even martyrdom. But notice how it says in verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, or another way to translate that is, after they have finished their assignment. See, God does not allow these two to be touched until their assignment is finished. And if anybody tries... Well, you read it. They have the power to shut the sky and they have the power to turn the waters into blood. Essentially, what the angel is saying is you don't mess with these two witnesses until their assignment is done. I remember talking to a believer a few weeks ago and they had a friend who was in a coma, a believer, and, uh, but they were still breathing. They still had breath in their their lungs, and my words to them was, God is not done. God is not done. You see, even when man may declare 
to us or to you that uh, there's no life left in anything. God has the final say. As long as you have breath in your lungs, God is not done doing something in you or using you for His glory. Now, their assignment would be finished, and after their assignment is finished, a beast would rise from the bottomless pit, and we'll get into that uh, in Revelation chapter 13, but it's no secret that the beast that rises from the bottomless pit is the Antichrist, to which the Antichrist and these two witnesses will face off with each other, and, and they will uh, ultimately be destroyed, they will be killed by the Antichrist. Now, what transpires after that is quite interesting. Uh, the people will celebrate that the two witnesses are destroyed. They'll bring presents. They'll make merry. They'll be glad because these people were a torment to them. Their bodies will lie in the street. Now, John says, he says of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt. Now, the great city that he's referring to is Jerusalem. It's where all of this will take place. But symbolically, in the last days, it will be called Sodom in Egypt. Uh, why? Because anytime Egypt is mentioned in Scripture, it is always a picture of the world. And anytime Sodom is mentioned in Scripture, it, it is always mentioned considering its wickedness. In the last days, Jerusalem will be likened to Sodom and Egypt because they will reject Christ. And during this time, people who don't know the Lord will continue uh, to keep going in that same direction. They won't want to know anything about Christ. And then we see that the two witnesses who are laid dead in the streets. Now, mind you, they didn't want to put them in a tomb. I wonder why. The last guy they tried putting in a tomb got out of that tomb. They let them lay there for three and a half days, making a mockery of them, celebrating. We destroyed God's anointed. Listen, you cannot do that. You cannot destroy God's anointed. See, here's a reason why I believe this, and maybe you've experienced it in your own life. A righteous person is always a torment to a wicked person. A righteous person living in God's light shines that light upon those living in darkness and makes them feel deeply agitated. These people were deeply agitated. They celebrated. Yes, these righteous people are dead. Not so fast. Look what happens in verse 11 through 13. But after three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. You think? Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. You imagine that just for a moment, seeing these two witnesses ascend up into heaven and all of their enemies just looking at them like, what? What just happened? They were dead. And now God is calling them home and it says, And at that hour, as the enemies were watching, there was a great earthquake. What does that remind you of? And the tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And finally, there's a, a hopeful part in this Christ-rejecting world. And the rest were terrified 
and gave glory to God. In my Bible, I wrote, finally. Because up until this point, there was no mention of anybody turning to, to, to Christ, except the 144,000. But those who were rejecting Christ, they were not uh, in a position where they wanted to even turn to Christ until this happens, until God raises these two lifeless bodies from the street. And you can imagine the look of horror and astonishment upon those who are looking uh, on, on these once lifeless bodies. Yet God, who is all-powerful, raises these two from the dead. And he invites them to come home. He says, come up here. He says, come home. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. And upon that, 7,000 were killed by the earthquake. And yet, those who were not killed finally fell in fear of God and gave glory to him. Now here's three takeaways as we wrap up our time together. The first one is this. Does your heart mourn for those who are lost? Does your heart mourn for those who don't know the Lord? Considering what awaits those who don't know Jesus, does it create in us, does it create in you a fervency to share the gospel with the unsaved? We all have people that we come in contact with that don't know Christ. Let me ask you, when was the last time you shared the gospel with them? And I'm not talking about saying God bless you when they sneeze, okay? (laughs) When was the last time you actually told them about what Jesus did for all of humanity? When was the last time you clearly gave the message of the gospel out to somebody who needed to hear that there's hope in someone and that someone is the savior of this world? When is the last time? For many of us, it's hard to remember. You might say, well, I live that silent example because there's this one guy that said, uh, preach the gospel and if at all possible or if, if, if needed use words so I kind of err on that I'm a silent witness use your words speak up share the gospel be bold be courageous trust in God that he will give you the words to say and that he will deal with that person's heart all you have to do is plant or water but when was the last time you told someone of the gospel in this new year one of our plans is to have a Saturday morning, Saturday morning, how to share your faith workshop. Um, and so we'll have more details on that to come. But listen, if there is this intimidation factor within you that, well, I don't even know how to share my faith. I don't even know how to share the gospel. Listen, put it on your calendar within the next couple, uh, few months, we will have uh, an opportunity for us to better hone in on how to share the gospel with those that are unsaved. Number two is, is this. Takeaway number two is wh- where do you stand? Are you sure that when you die, if you were to leave here when you die, are you going to spend eternity in heaven with Christ? Uh, you see, in, in our church world today, listen, there are a ton of professing Christians, but their lives do not show that they have been changed. Their lives are anything but godly. And and listen, if that's you today, you've claimed the name of Christ, but you are not walking in his ways, repent. Turn to Jesus. 
walk in his ways. Listen, I know sometimes the world gets, gets under our skin and emotions flare up and it causes this chaos within our minds and it changes our attitude and behavior and we act anything like Christ in the moments. But listen, uh, be as consistent as possible. If you have claimed the name, but you're not walking in his ways, repent and he will forgive you. Number three is this. There is good news. There is good news. And we see such a clear picture of that in this chapter of what the power of God can do. He rose these two from the dead and he's done it way before then as well. But listen, he called them home. The good news is that Jesus has the power to raise dead things to life. It is the power of God that brings the dead to life. And maybe this morning you don't know Jesus. Listen, friend, the Bible says that if you don't know Jesus, you are dead. You may be physically alive, but I would rather be spiritually alive. Knowing that when I do die, that I won't be missing anything on this side of heaven. I'll have gained everything I could have ever wanted when I meet my maker face to face. And maybe this morning you don't know Christ. Listen, turn from your sins, repent, and decide. Make that that decision to follow Jesus. Jesus. 